Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. This is our community night. It's a special night dedicated to those of you who are our faithful listeners. Everyone from the JB crowd to the KEQQ crowd to the soulasknoahshow.com listeners. We're happy to have you. You can be a part of the show in a number of different ways. You can, of course, give us a call on our toll-free line, 855-450-NOAH. You can email us live at asknoahshow.com. Join us in our interactive chat room, which, by the way, we're trying something new tonight. You can join us on Freenode tonight, pound Ask Noah Show. More information later in the hour about a drawing that's going to come up on Wednesday during our 100th edition of the Ask Noah Show episode. We'll bring that information to you later as the show goes on. Right now, I want to welcome our Mumble Room, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. There, you too can add your voice to the conversation. Hey, Mumble Room, how are we doing? Hey there. I'm doing great. Hey, oh, just fine. Hey, what a turnout. Uh, uh, even, uh, yeah, there's some people I don't, I don't get to talk to very often, so this is going to be really exciting. So, anyway, thanks for being here. Mumble Room tonight, uh, because it's community night, I'm just leaving you guys on, so you can just jump in there anytime. Usually the format is, you know, ping us in the chat room, and then uh, I know to go to you guys. But like I say, community night, everything flies. Anybody can talk anytime they want. We're kind of just kicking back and, and doing loose with the structure a little bit. So one of the things, yeah, one of the things that I think is lacking on the Ask Noah show, completely my fault, it's something we haven't done a very good job with, is, um, oh, by the way, it's pound Ask Noah show, not, uh, not, not anything else. So just so we know, um, one of the things that I think that we have not done a particularly good job with is feedback on the show. Uh, people write in all the time. Now I read almost all of the feedback that comes into the show. I don't, however, read it on the air because I'm confined to one hour during our week. And uh, obviously we've got a lot of content to get through since we only have one hour a week. Well, tonight that's different, right? Because tonight it's all about the community. It's all about you, the listener. So tonight you direct the content. We've got some content prepared in case we run out, but if you have a question, we invite you to call. If you want to add your voice to the conversation and give your opinion about something, we, you know, invite you to do so. And of course, we're going to go through some of the email here. So uh, the first piece of email I want to get to, this came in this week from Tyler. And Tyler says, hello, Noah. I just wanted to say thank you for the day of job shadowing a couple years back. I was able to ace my Microsoft project course by learning a ton from you and bypassing all of the MS services required with FOSS alternatives. It was a blast. And I also had a question, if you get a chance to answer my emails. I seem to do a, be a good, do a good job of being busy during the evening, so I apologize for never calling in. This may be something you were going to get to soon. I know you had mentioned it briefly, and I would like to hear more about your security camera implementation, more specifically the networking behind it. Are you using something like Ubiquiti's AirFiber? I'm interested about learning a little bit more about this product or something similar. I have, uh, I have assisted living office that is beyond 300 feet from our closet 
and trenching fiber was estimated over $10,000. So I would like to hear the practical implementation that you experienced. I want to understand what I need to implement a similar solution. This is a two-part question. Could such a solution be practical to backhaul traffic to 18 residents' wireless devices? I'm also exploring the options to install guest wireless to these residents. So understanding if this would be practical, that would be great. This is a community-based assisted living building with a limited budgetary constraints. So thanks again for the show and everything you're doing to give back to the community. I really appreciate the primary focus of education. Well, first of all, Tyler, uh, thanks for writing in. You're most welcome. And what Tyler is referring to when he's talking about the job shadowing, a couple every so often, this I would say we probably get one or two of these a month. Uh, somebody writes in either via email or letter or stops by the shop and says, listen, I listen to the show. I know who you are. I, too, want to start the next Alta Speed, or I am going to start my college career in IT, or I'm going to go into a development field. I want to come and get real-life experience from somebody who is doing it with open source, solving problems with open source. Can you help me? And, and, and will you let me just follow you around and just kind of learn what you guys do? Of course, we're always open to that. Certain things not being withstanding, one of which is your ability to pass a background check because obviously we've got some security concerns. But barring those kinds of things, we're absolutely happy to have you come on out. And um, the only thing we're not able to do is we're not able to pay people. So I'd say every every so often I'll, I'll get a letter or an email or somebody will use the contact form and they'll say, could I come, uh, would you hire me just for six or eight months or something like that? And could I come work for you? Unfortunately, we're not able to do those kinds of things. And um, we try to get back to everybody that writes in and asks those kinds of questions. Unfortunately, I can donate all my time I want to on the Ask Noah show. It gets a little bit difficult when people send things into the company, Altispeed Technologies, for us to get back to everybody. So if you're one of the people that have written in or called or something like that and asked about that, if you haven't heard back, that's probably wise because we just don't have the staff to, to kind of answer those questions. But you're more than welcome to write in on the show or, or interact with me that way. And I'd be more than happy to see if we can get you scheduled or, or in or something like that. But we always love visitors, always welcome people to come with. So breaking apart Tyler's question just a little bit. The first question, what did we use for the networking uh, back infrastructure? Well, that's a great question, Tyler. And the answer to that is, yes, we did indeed use Ubiquiti's uh, air fiber products. Now, the nice thing about these Ubiquiti products are they are incredibly inexpensive. And so you can pick them up for just pennies on the dollar. They're also ridiculously easy to install. I had them, I think, from the time the box showed up at my house until the time that I had an established one gigabit link was about, I'm going to say about four minutes. There's a web config on each device. You log into the built-in web page. You inform it about the other device. You plug some network cables into each end, and you've established a link, and it works phenomenally. Um, they're incredibly reliable. The only time you run into a problem is when you want to stretch a long distance. Now, the advertised range of most of the Ubiquiti products, at least the nanobeams, is 17 kilometers. And uh, just using simple math, that means that that translates to roughly about 10 miles, a little over that. And um, when you're going 10 miles, you have to consider the fact that these things have, the sector, for example, has about 120 degrees of uh, a pickup angle that it can receive a signal from. But when you get out 10 miles, if you're off by even, you know, it's 
you know, two or three degrees, by the time you get to that end of the 10 miles, you're off by, you know, multiple tens of feet. I, I'm not that great at math that I can do all of that in my head. But the point is, if you look out of a sector and you point your arms at, at about 120 degrees, you can get an idea how many feet the spread is. And obviously that cone goes out. The further out you are from that receiving device, the less the signal is going to be. And so you, you need to be relatively accurate when you're going out to these very long distances. And that's why when we went out to Oslo, Minnesota to set up this networking infrastructure, I actually flew in Mr. Chris DeLuca from West Virginia because Chris has set these up all over the place. The guy is a true expert. He knows more about the Ubiquity products than the people at Ubiquity who make them. And uh, he was able to look at, he's able to just stand on a roof or look at a, uh, a tower or a pole and he'll just be able to tell you that's going to work that's not going to work. He doesn't need to do any measurements. He doesn't have to take any calculations or any readings, anything like that. He can just look at something and pretty much tell you if it's going to work or not. He was wrong in the right way. And when I say that, what I mean was he looked at something and said, that's probably not going to work. It did work. It just barely worked. We were able to get it. We weren't able to get the full uh, one gigabit, but we, we were able to get close to 100 megs at a, at a great distance. And we were just putting a single camera so it turned out that that, that link was going to be sufficient. Um, but yeah, having somebody like that in your corner is great. Uh, I will tell you that CDC Solutions is not a cheap place to go if you need uh, consulting in these kinds of things. But CDC Solutions is the right place to go when you need solutions in these kinds of things. So obviously, Tyler, if you're still in the area, go ahead and hit me up. You know, you have my phone number. You can always shoot me an email and just say, this is what we're looking to do. And obviously we'd come out free of charge. We could take a look at it with you. If nothing else, we can point you in the right direction to how you would go implementing this, this solution. But, um, that is what the backend infrastructure looks like and, and kind of how we set that up. And one of the things that we did early on was we made sure to put a POE switch next to each one of these pieces of network infrastructure. The idea being that we can remotely reboot and monitor all of these pieces of equipment without having to be on site. So if one of these links go down, we can look to where the last good link is and restart that PoE switch. Well, restart the port that what it, whichever, whichever radio is malfunctioning, I guess, as it were. And we're able to reestablish that link, which we've actually done once or twice. Although I have to say, barring any power weirdness that occurs inside of the lines. So electrical voltage and all of that stuff varies just a little bit. Aside from that, we really haven't had any issues with those or the cameras. And of course the cameras are also ubiquity. Great thing about those cameras, they establish an encrypted link between the camera and the DVR. And then the DVR, which is on site establishes an encrypted link between it and the receiving device. Now, since the time that we talked about that, on the Ask Noah show. And now Ubiquity has actually come out with a new device and they're calling it the Cloud Key 2. And what the CK2 is, is it's essentially a small miniature network appliance server. And what the network appliance server does is it basically has all of the Ubiquity services built into this single 1U device. And so you install this device into your network and you're able to manage cameras, you're able to manage network infrastructure, uh, and, it, and it acts as the NVR. And so you're able to record all of your footage from your cameras on the single device. Now, there are things I like about it and things I don't like about it. I like the fact that it's a cost competitive one U device that essentially manages your entire network. 
The thing that I don't like about it, one is, I'm not a big fan of putting all of your eggs in one basket. One of the reasons, one of our selling points of our managed network services and the reason that we go out and install some of this networking equipment is because we tell clients, hey, if you're a business, you should not have your cable modem, your router, your switch, and your access point all in one device and call that your router. Because that's what a lot of people have. They have those four or five devices in one single unit and they call it a router. And then when your quote unquote router dies, everything dies. You can't even send print jobs to the printer from your laptop because your switch is down and your access point is down. So your entire network infrastructure crashes. So after spending all this time explaining to clients why they should break these things out and have a modular network that has redundancy and is not dependent on one another, it's very difficult for me to go back and say, well, but I really think you should take these four or five things and condense them down into a single box. Additionally, you have to spend money for this additional box because that cloud key cannot be virtualized. One of the things that I think is very advantage, uh, advantageous of all of Unify's lineup is that all of their software can be virtualized, and we often do virtualize it. So we will take the DVR software and we'll run that inside of a VM. And the nice thing about doing it that way is we have the capability of expanding up or down so if the client all of a sudden adds a bunch of cameras and they want to go back further in time and they want all that video recorded at 1080p, we can just assign more hard drive space, assign more processors, assign more memory. And we can scale up or down because it's a VM. It also means that we can run it on bare metal if the installation is big enough. And that's something that you just don't see with the Bosch's and the Sony's and the, and the competition to the Unify system. So I like that part of it. I also like the fact that you can have a single physical server and you can run a Unify controller on one virtual machine, the NVR on another one, and you essentially build this virtual array of network appliances, all of which are modular, interchangeable, and reconfigurable at any time. And so by going to the single uh, monolithic unit, you eliminate a lot of your options. But I think it is good for the people that are starting out um, and just starting to play with some of this stuff, I think it's a, I think it's a great way to go. So I hope that helps you, Tyler. Like I say, if, if not, you can always, uh, get back to us, asknoahshow.com. You can email us live at asknoahshow.com. Thanks so much for reaching out. We really appreciate it. Um, second email comes from Peter. So Peter writes into the show and, uh, get Peter's email pulled back up here. Peter says, uh, at work, I'm trying to configure a Cisco Catalyst 2950 switch that is being used in an isolated network. Originally, it consisted of one Windows server and nine workstations, all of them with static IPs. And I'm trying to set up a Linux server to replace the Windows server, and I want to hand the IPs out via DHCP. But for some reason, the workstations cannot see the Linux server, even though both are on the same VLAN. I don't have much experience configuring Cisco switches, and I haven't been able to find the solution using Google. Any ideas? So uh, I actually threw this chat room in uh, in our uh, our Telegram group, which if you're not in, you should join telegram.asknoahshow.com. And there was a lively discussion. And uh, what did you guys, uh, the mumble, holy cow, the mumble room has just blown up. What did you guys find if anybody was in there for that discussion? Mumble room? 
Anybody? Well, I'll tell you where I would start troubleshooting while I wait for somebody to uh, <laughs> chime in if they're here. Um, where I would start troubleshooting is with the basics. So first I would unplug the Cisco switch and I would plug all of them into just like a little dumb Linksys switch or D-Link switch and see if you have interconnection that way. And once I've confirmed that you have interconnection that way, then the next thing I would do is I'd go back and say, let's try without any of the VLAN stuff, just connecting all of this with the Cisco switch. Because the first thing you want to eliminate is, is there a problem with any of the servers or with any of the clients or all of the above? Let's figure all that out. Once we've eliminated that, then let's try to figure out if there's uh, an issue with the, if there is in fact an issue with the configuration of the Cisco switch, or if there's an issue somewhere else. And so I would try just with the blank Cisco, con Cisco config and see if that works. Now, the way that VLANs work in Cisco land is pretty simple. You literally go to, to the, the, the terminal, the, man, how deep do we want to get into this? When you go, Cisco switches have what they call the configuration terminal or conf T. And when you go to that mode, you're able to assign information to the switch itself. So you'd go into your configuration terminal, you'd go into the switch port, so switch port, you know, one or two or three or whatever, and you'd simply assign it the VLANs, VLAN one, VLAN two, VLAN three. And that's, that's really all you should need to do for those specific ports to all exist within their own little virtual network. Now, once you get into wanting to connect these switches to other switches and having VLAN traffic be tagged and pass between switches through trunk, trunk ports and stuff like that, then it gets a little bit more complicated. But for your setup, what you've described thus far, all you should have to do, if everything works when you plug it into the, 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 the regular Cisco switch without anything connected, and all you've done is assign VLAN port numbers and it's not working, I would argue that there's probably something wrong with your Cisco switch. One of the things that somebody in our chat room had recommended, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is Start with your basic troubleshooting steps as far as, you know, can you ping one device to the other? There's also tools that will allow you to essentially sniff uh, DHCP traffic. And so you might consider installing something like that and taking a look at the DHCP traffic and seeing if it's an issue with your DHCP server. And you can move on and, uh, and troubleshoot from there. But anytime I'm troubleshooting networks, my, my general piece of advice, again, there's a million things that could lead to, to that particular problem. But my general rule of advice, anytime you're troubleshooting networks, is try to simplify the network as much as possible and then slowly add complexity back into your network until you discover the problem. And whatever step that happens in, that's where I would concentrate on. And it is not above Cisco switches to just be weird once they get a config. I have a sw switch right now in our shop that... Anytime you apply any sort of configuration to it whatsoever, it will not pass traffic to whatever the gateway is. It just you traffic can't leave the can't leave the switch. It won't. It just it's it's a very strange issue. Um, and we've tried resetting it and doing all sorts of things, and we just can't seem to fix it. And so it's it's an older switch, so I don't really care. But that that's my suggestion to you is is break that stuff up, and uh, and see if you can play with it that way. Again, phone lines are open tonight, 1-855-450-6624. You can join us in our interactive mumble room, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. Mumble room, like I was saying before, it looks like it blew up in here. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 people in the mumble room. It's great that all of you could make it. Uh, just so you guys know, mumble room is up and alive. You don't have to uh, ping in the chat room, anything like that tonight. I've just got you guys up. I just want to have a conversation about Linux or anything you want to talk about. Just go ahead and bring it up. Otherwise... 
I do have a couple things prepped here and I'm just going to keep going through feedback and, and stuff like that. It's all about the community tonight. Peter writes in from California. He says, Hey Noah, thanks for all you've done for the Linux community. I currently have a Fedora home server running C file duplicity MB and a Unify controller. I'm thinking about virtualizing the server on CentOS KVM and vert manager. My question is this, will there be additional maintenance for the server? Right now I run DNF upgrade once a week, which is pretty minimal. Let's say I have five guests. I need to provide updates to each one of the guests individually by logging in through SSH, or is there a program that can at least be somewhat automate this? Thanks and keep, keep it up from California. Well, uh, Peter, here's the thing. Um, the short answer to your question is yes, we are going to add some work, some complexity and some difficulty to your update process because yes, you're correct. If you've got five servers, as far as software updates are concerned, you have five servers. You no longer have a single server. It would be as if you purchased five individual boxes and installed an operating system and then each of your five individual server on these five individual boxes. Now that is both a positive and a negative. First, let me explain why that is beneficial to you. The, the reason that it is beneficial to you is because you now have the ability to update one of those boxes without updating all of those boxes. You have the ability to say, Hey, in this particular case, in this particular case, I have the unified machine that needs an update, but I have the, you know, this duplicity box over here that I'm not sure how it's going to update. Or in my case, and what I run into quite frequently is, this is an unimportant machine. It doesn't have any mission critical stuff on it. So let's keep it as up to date as possible to minimize security concerns. Then I have this box over here that it is not mission critical. And so it's a great testing bed for me to see, does this latest update break anything? And before I, and I quote, steal anyone's thunder, I'll bring in Eric, the IT guy. Hey man, welcome back to the Ask Noah show. <laughs> hey Noah. Um, so I had a couple of thoughts in mind. Um, sure. I've I've got a similar setup at home. Uh, I'm running um, I'm running uh, Fedora and then Libvirt with uh, a couple of guests on top. Uh, so my first thought was if if you want to if you want to go the easy route, uh, just use a tool like Tmux and have multiple sessions going at the same time. Um, so you with, with Tmux, it's a terminal multiplexer, uh, is is what they call it. But it's it's basically you can open multiple panes in your terminal and SSH into each of those boxes, and then you can synchronize those panes so that you type in the command once, and that command replicates across all of your panes. So you log into all five systems and and run your your DNF update. Um, it's a fantastic tool, isn't it? Oh, I, I, I have Tmux installed everywhere for work, for, for home, for, for my digital ocean environment. I, I've got panes everywhere. Um, and then as, uh, as G-Dog mentioned in, in the chat, um, my, my more technical answer and, and my, my preference nowadays would be to just have an Ansible playbook uh, where you'd have an inventory file that listed all of the, uh, all five or, or I guess six of the hosts if you count the, uh, the actual virtual machine host. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it would just run, uh, run updates uh, through a playbook. And to be clear, I have, I have set up environments in which the host itself is not exposed to the outside network 
just the virtual guests are. So we pass a network card through that acts as the virtual switch bridge to the guests. And, uh, and, and, and by doing so, then we have another network card that is specifically on the host and that machine isn't directly exposed to the internet and we can limit, not eliminate, but eliminate a lot of the, uh, a lot of the exposure and minimize some of the security risks. Brandon is also with us in our mumble room. Brandon, you had some thoughts on this as well. Yeah. Well, Eric took my answer. Uh, Ansible would absolutely be the the way I do handle this. Um, like today, so I, at at home, I'm managing, let's see, twenty virtual machines uh, plus my four uh, physical laptops and then my three uh, hypervisors. So I use an Ans- I use Ansible to um, update those on a fairly regular basis. Uh, actually, I just have a um, actually use a, an open source project that's the uh, it's an open source project that's uh, what's used for uh, it's used as the basis for Ansible Tower uh, and that does all the scheduling and it handles all the inventory for me uh, of all those servers why Ansible both of you gave me the same answer w- w- what is so great about Ansible and and why Ansible over some of the other alternatives like uh, Puppet for example so uh, the for me, it's mostly uh, preference. Uh, most so Puppet uh, has its own special uh, lang- uh, programming language. It kind of looks a lot like, uh, in my opinion, you know, some people may disagree with this, but it kind of looks uh, a little like Ruby. Um, you know, so it kind of can get pretty complex. What I like about Ansible is it's really, really simple. Like if I've sent uh, a playbook that people have no idea. Uh, what Ansible is, but they can tell me right away what that playbook does without knowing having any knowledge of Ansible. Like they probably have a Linux knowledge, but they have a um, a deep, uh, but they but they they don't have any exposure to Ansible at all. But they can still look at a playbook and tell me exactly what it does. How hard is Ansible to get set up and running? Like, let's say I'm going to go play with this. I'm going to set this up from start to finish. I have no experience with Ansible at all. What am I looking at? Because the word Ansible, I I don't know. There's just something about it that makes it sound techie and programmy and complicated and difficult. Well, actually, uh, Brandon was the one who turned me on to Ansible, and he walked me through the process over Telegram in about five minutes. And and (laughs) And you paid him back by stealing his thunder. Yes, that, that's that's what I usually so, do. So, uh, so from an ans- so Ansible, we'll get, go through it really quick. Uh, but uh, so it's a YAML file. So it's broken down. So uh, your inventory and then essentially the tasks you want to complete. Like that's essentially what it is. Uh, that's what Ansible looks like. Uh, uh, an Ansible playbook looks like. But then uh, all you need to get started. So like. Uh, the clients, the ones that are executing this, all I need is um, uh, SSH access. So be able to do a key exchange, for example. So you just need to do key exchange between the system that is um, uh, executed, executing the playbook and the target. Um, and the target system just needs to have Python installed. And 99% mm. of uh, Linux servers I've worked on have uh, some version of Python installed by default. So uh, you, you you can get started really fast 
it, uh, with it. You know, some complaints with Ansible that it's a little, it's slow. It can be slow, but if you write your playbooks correctly, uh, it can be really fast. Um, uh, and uh, it can scale really easily with uh, with projects like uh, AWX. AWX is uh, the the, um, the Ansible Tower project I mentioned, uh, the open source uh, Ansible Tower. Um, That's very cool. I think there's a, yeah. So Ansible's like I love Ansible. I recommend it to everyone. If you manage more manage more than four servers, I think it's worth it to learn, just because. Uh, uh, it's agentless, so you don't have to install anything on the on the um, target servers. So makes it super easy. Uh, and then and the Ansible pet, and then on the cut um, an, for lack of a better word, the Ansible master just needs to have the Ansible um, uh, package installed. So that that that's it, and you just need to build an inventory file and then your playbook and the and your playbooks. That's very cool. One uh, dabble in our chat room in. Uh pound ask noah show over on freenode posts a copy of his playbook and this is for uh, machine inventory and uh we'll have that linked for you in the show notes but essentially it's uh, from what i understand this is a, a, a would you call them scripts or do you are they just playbooks so so what a playbook essentially ends up doing is uh it ends up executing python code it actually ends up uh, executing a python script uh, so the uh, the playbook itself is um, is just a descriptor to tell Ansible what to execute, and then the, and that's why Python has to be on the uh, uh, receiving end on the receiving end so that it can actually execute the Python code. I tell you what, I really like the fact that this runs agentless. I, I to me the ability to not have to go out and touch a bunch of servers and. That means that there's really no risk for somebody to go out and try Ansible because if it ever stops working for you, if you decide to go with another solution, all you have to do is get rid of your Ansible master machine. You've not really touched any of the other machines. I, I'm assuming it's doing this remote execution over something like SSH. Yeah, it's just doing it over SSH. And also what's really cool, uh, what one of the new things that I've been dabbling in with uh, Ansible is... Uh, uh, managing network equipment. So one of the things that it's really good at now is managing like Cisco or uh, F5 load balancers. So there's a ton of modules inside of Ansible, uh, inside of Ansible to do that. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. And, you know, as we look, I was talking, I think last week at some point, we were talking about the idea that that distance between network equipment and servers is rapidly closing, right? Because today switches, edge devices, they're all essentially mini computers and most, most if not all of them are running Linux. And so you really become a system administrator and a network engineer all at once. And so having a tool to manage all of these things all at once, you're from everything from your network equipment down to your servers is fantastic. Now, if that ties into legacy network equipment, that's even better. Yeah. And also storage, like you can also use it to manage storage, like ZFS pools, um, like I'm thinking like a, um, like a free NAS, you can also use it to manage, uh, LVM manage legacy, uh, like NetApp um, uh, storage. Like it's pretty powerful. Um, and, 
every and then there's a like a, a lot of really cool stuff uh inside of like rel um or centos uh that they're calling um try to remember the name what the name of the feature is but basically like if you want to quickly set up like a free ipa server for example on centos or rel there's um now the ability to just create a free ipa server with uh with ansible that's very cool brandon i have to ask you you have how many vms did you say you had 30 uh and so in my house i have 20. <clears throat> so that is a lot of vms and uh, i guess I, i'm just going to ask because i know there's somebody else out there listening to it and go man 20 vms it's crazy what are you running that on what does that host computer look like so uh, it's um so it's three servers uh xeon d's um uh xeon d 1518s so they're four core eight threads and each has 64 gigs of memory um and each and each server has a one terabyte uh ssd now uh one terabyte usable because what i'm doing is is i'm using gluster to hyper convert so, to uh replicate the storage across all three so that if uh, one dies uh, it's not a big deal uh, but I have it distributed across all three so I have like 10 running on one 10 running on another and 10 running on 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 another and what and if I need to rebalance or whatever they just live migrate between um, those uh, those servers that's so uh, very cool yeah and then and I'm just running things like C file so I've been running C file for like three and a half years yeah um and then uh uh and i i have a bunch of other stuff like plex i actually i also have an mb server that's what i love about doing having having this infrastructure i can test out all as many things as i want but a lot of stuff i actually really use like my plex server c file i have a um a windows virtual desktop if i need to use it um, another virtual uh, Linux virtual desktop if I need to use it too. The, you know, what's interesting about that is I was just having a discussion with a gentleman today, totally unrelated to the program, but we we're having a conversation and he calls me up and um, I don't know that he has a great insight into what I do for a living, much less what we do here on the show. But um, he, he gave me a call and he said, have you ever heard of Nextcloud? And I said, yeah, man, I love my Nextcloud instance. And he said, yeah, I, I just got done setting it up at home and it's really great. And I'm, I'm doing all these really cool things with it. And uh, talk to me about some of the issues that he ran into. And I said, just something to be concerned or just to take note of, I would be cautious about using NextCloud to sync a lot of files, especially if they're big files, because some of the underlying technology I have not found to be incredibly robust. And I, I said, maybe you want to check out C file. That's kind of what I'm using to sync these files and kind of replace Dropbox. And he said, yeah, I'm going to check that out. That sounds really cool. Brandon, I'm interested in your thoughts. Is that a good recommendation? Have you found C file to be the most reliable file sync solution? And do you, have you had a chance to compare it much to next cloud or own cloud? So, yes. So, um, so let, let me give you the, give you the quick history of my file syncing. So I've been uh, using solutions like, uh, that resemble um, C file or next cloud since 2006. Um, oh, wow. So before, so before, before Dropbox, Dropbox yeah. yeah. So before Dropbox even existed, it was actually a, an open source project that Novell put out called iFolder. So I was using that. I was self hosting that for a long time. Um, it went end of life, uh, like uh, 
it, the open source project stopped being developed in 2010 or 2011. And I was like, and I kept running it until like 2014. So it's like wow. about four years ago. And I'm like, I got to find something that worked. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, um, so I started, I looked at own cloud own cloud had just basically, uh, I think it was about a year old at that point. I don't remember when own cloud came out, I gave it a shot for like six months and it didn't meet my requirements. I had like, it had to fit the iFolder paradigm. Um, like I had to be able to go in and go into my system and just select any folder I wanted to sync like that. That's when it, that was my main requirement. I didn't want to have to shoehorn my, the workflow. I yeah, made boy, it work, a... but, but it, but it worked. And it painfully it work very reliably. Now C files ticks all those boxes. I can go into C file and just say, I want that file to, folder to be synced and it's done. Okay. And that, and, and, and that you, then you wound up on C file. Oh yeah. And it's been the most reliable one. So I've never used Dropbox. I've never used any of those. Chat room is asking if Nextcloud and uh, Nextcloud and OwnCloud uh, are the same thing, or what do they offer? The, essentially, the short answer is everything was OwnCloud, and when the company OwnCloud started to go a direction that all of the key people didn't particularly care for, they said, "We're going to take a code, we're going to fork it, and we're going to continue at the direction that we think we should go." You go ahead and concentrate on commercial and enterprise and stuff like that. We're going to concentrate on writing good code that matters to people who use it and that maintains open source. And essentially overnight, Nextcloud became the next great thing and OwnCloud just kind of died. I think it still technically exists, but I don't know of many people no, that it, use it. There's st it's still getting a lot of commits um, on GitHub. My, my only issue with both projects, whether if you're talking Nextcloud or OwnCloud, mm -hmm. Like besides the sinking reliability in the past, I know it's gotten better, but I feel like they try to boil the ocean. Like, let's do, you know, let's have a CalDAV server, CardDAV server. Let's also do video chat. Let's do this. Well, let's do that. And that's I don't actually, like that. <laughs> that. That's actually what I wish they would focus on: is the CalDAV and CardDAV and WebDAV, because I nowhere else can I find a solution that that uh, NextCloud has when it comes to those solutions. Um, yeah, so like what, what I use for CalDAV, um, I actually just use Zimbra. So I have, um, my email's hosted with a local ISP and they use Zimbra. Man, and talk about, talk about a project great. I've not heard of for a long time. <laughs> Zimbra? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was back. That was like, I remember when Zimbra first came out, you know what they were competing against? Exchange. Lotus Notes, <laughs> Lotus Notes Domino was the was the was the thing that they when you went to their website you know whatever it was 15 plus years ago 10 plus years ago whatever it was um when you went to their website that that's what they were primarily competing against back in the day was lotus notes domino that's how far back zimbra goes yeah i remember that and uh so i bit so this is hosted by my the this a local isp here in utah um so i use that and it's reliable i like the caldav the caldav is very reliable the card dav is very reliable syncs on my phone syncs on my computer does a great job with that like um what, what i like about c file it's a master of syncing your stuff and then i prefer stuff that does the you know i prefer 
tools for the right job. I don't want one a Swiss Army knife because Swiss Army knife is okay at at some things, but it but it's it's uh, a, it's a spork syndrome. Is it a yeah. good fork? Not really. Is it a good spoon? Not really. But it's a fork exactly. and a spoon. Yeah. Midfree, what well, is it? Sorry, sorry. sorry uh, Mid, I just want to talk to Midfree for a second. What sure, has sure. your experience been with um, with Nextcloud? You've tried it. You've used it. And you said you would you wish they'd concentrate more on Caldev. I used OwnCloud way back in the day when it first came out, and it 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 uh, was great for uh, hosting all my contacts. I have not been happy with any uh, address book out there. I've tried dozens of them, but at least. At least with own cloud and now with next cloud you can sync your phones to it and you don't have to rely on a cloud hosting provider like uh google or you know the plethora of people who want to to uh sign up with them so the the actual the, the going back to the discussion i was having with the totally unrelated third party today he was trying to get the what's the libra office implement uh, collabora he was trying to get collabora to work and he was having some difficulty and i remember when they first announced this how excited I was to get collaborative mm -hmm. document editing and something that could replace G Suite docs, but that I could self-host. And uh, from day one, I never could get it to work right. And and I, I told him, I was like, well, is it even, I mean, is it actually a, a published feature now? Because the last time I tried it, it just, it did not work well. Have either of you had good success using Collabra? I have. Both of you have? Brandon, we'll take you first. So I'm using it with a C file. So C file okay. can interact with it. And um, I'm not using the Docker container. I act, so it's not, uh, it's actually the uh, LibreOffice RPMs. I was able to get a hold of the actual, they're not Collabras, they're, they're LibreOffice Li Libre online RPMs. Um, uh, and uh, so I'm not using the Docker uh, container and sure. that seems to be working just fine. So you have a you have a CentOS server, and you've installed the LibreOffice Online, uh, which we'll have linked in the show notes. Podcast.asknoahshow.com. Um, so you have this LibreOffice Online package installed, and then you have a C file instance installed on that same server, and you're using no, no? they're se they're separate. So I keep them separate. So they're on two different virtual machines. And they just communicate. Uh, uh, there's a net, uh, over network um, using actually using WebDAV. You have to have uh, using uh, WebDAV with C file, the built-in WebDAV feature in C file. It will communicate over WebDAV and open the files. That that's basically all it does. So a person though that's trying to set this up as simply and straightforward as possible, they would probably put it on a single machine though. And when you, so you set this up, you have your LibreOffice online set up, you have C file on top of it, and you're just telling C file to sync the files, or you're telling, I suppose, rather LibreOffice online to store the files inside of your C file synced folder. Yes. So it's a sync, it's a writing it to, to the, to WebDAV, which happens to be the that sync folder. So let me ask you this, because that just gives me an interesting idea and an interesting thought process of how we can go with this. So are you telling me that you have this set up in such a way that you can go to a, a website, essentially, and look or edit or collaboratively edit your documents, or you can go to a folder that's locally synced on, a, on, on specified computers and call those files up directly inside of a local document editor? Yes. That Man, that seems like the preferred way to go. I mean, it's, you know, maybe it's a little bit more involved to set up the next cloud, all of, you know, 
two more steps, but it seems like it offers you a tremendous amount of more flexibility. Um, Eric, I want to go to you, uh, talk to you for a second. What were you about to say before I, I got into it with Brandon? Well, I was going to kind of echo what Mitfree was talking about. Um, I mean, Nextcloud seems to work pretty well for, for my current scale um, as far as file size, number of files, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, they do have, uh, I think I think they call them plugins for calendar and tasks. And I tried going that route to eliminate both Apple and, and, uh, and Google in, in one swoop. But what I found was that at least from the web interface, uh, those those plugins were pretty limited. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I'm I can get so wrapped up in a task that I forget uh, that I've got another appointment. So under under iOS, I have the ability to uh, to tell it my starting location and tell me how long it will take to drive from my current location to my next appointment. So it'll it'll actually trigger an alert um, 10 minutes before I'm supposed to leave instead of say 10 minutes before I'm supposed to arrive at my destination. Um, so that was one feature that, uh, that that was missing. It's been suggested on uh, on their GitHub, but uh, it's been open for some time and, and hasn't gotten any attention. And then the, probably the more surprising feature I, I, I can remember, I tried this about three or four months ago, was uh, tasks. Um, their tasks plugin from the web interface at least didn't support recurring tasks and and i mean there's there's things i do daily there's things i do weekly and monthly that uh that would uh, would be really I, I feel like they're they're essential to have that that functionality but it's just missing from nextcloud tasks so um i'm on brandon again brandon's been giving me all kinds of ideas for my for my home lab and uh, on brandon's recommendation i'm going to give zimbra a try once i once i migrate to the c file especially if i want to start moving large audio and video files around coming uh, coming in the near future let me give you uh let me give you something else to consider eric and brandon i'd love to get your take on this as well Everybody seems in on getting rid of Google and getting off the Google juice. Have We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We didn't dive into it super deep, but do either of you have opinions on Helm? To give you a, 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 a short refresher, Helm is the startup that's taking on Gmail. Essentially, it is a $500 device that you purchase, you install in your home, and it using a mixture of onboard storage on this device, a cloud instance hosted in Amazon, will store all of your email in encrypted at rest, connect with a VPN and an encrypted tunnel back out to their cloud services and use that AWS instance to interface with the rest of the world. So you don't have to worry about configuring your firewall. You don't have to forward any ports. You don't have to worry about malicious traffic hitting your network. Everything is occurring through this encrypted VPN tunnel from this AWS instance over to this box. It's essentially a mail appliance as a service they it's a two-pronged approach you buy the appliance so you have all the data it's all stored locally you sync to it locally all of those kinds of things but there is a cloud component that allows you to talk out to the world have either of you heard of this played with it or plan to order it so i saw it i like the idea but <laughs> um i would rather be able to pull down the software and run it on my own infrastructure without mm. buying the the box. Um, you know, I'm currently hosting my email with a, with an ISP that I trust. So I'm not managing my email right now. Anyway, um, I don't want to manage email. I find that to be very tedious. Yeah. You and me both. <laughs> so, um, but I like the idea of it, but uh, I don't like the, 
I don't mind paying for it. I mean, I wouldn't mind paying a yearly subscription for the software. Like I, I already pay more than a hundred dollars a year for my email. Right. Uh, so it's, uh, um, I'm willing to pay pay the price, but I'd like to run the software on my own infrastructure. That's yeah, it. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't. The, uh, I, I there's. I think they're misreading their audience for a couple of reasons. So the first thing is, I work with clients. I work for a large corporation, and they have two full time mail administrators. People that their only function in life is to make sure that this mail server stays up and running and they don't have email. I'd say at least four or five times out of the year, something happens, the mail server goes down and for a couple of a stretch of hours, they don't have any email. So for my business, that would be just totally detrimental. I can't run an IT consulting business without email. It's just, you know, it's just not something I can do. And um, so email is a high priority for me. And like you, Brandon, I've managed enough mail servers in my life to know that I never want to manage a mail server as long as I live. Email was just not designed for 2018. There, it is susceptible to so many issues and problems and spam and filtering and and security firewall considerations that I just I could never want to deal with that. The that the thing that appeals to me about this device is it has the ease and simplicity of G Suite, with the privacy and ownership that would come with a self-hosted solution without the headaches. So I feel like. Everything that you just described as a downside to hosting your own email, they are addressing while at the same time providing you with everything that that you guys had indicated you wanted in a self-hosted service. Are they not? No, they are. I, I like the idea of it. I just don't want to buy their hardware. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> that's that's fair. And you know, honestly, a lot that was the number the article that we have. I will throw this back in the show notes too. So if you want it, you know, head over to podcast.asnoahshow.com. We'll have this um, linked in there as well. Um, the the number one criticism from the article from ARS Technica is, in fact, that are you going to be able to find users that want to upfront the cost of five hundred dollars to? what they equate to will become a paperweight if this company ever falls under, because without the cloud component, this hardware device is essentially useless. And so do you really want to buy a $500 device that could potentially be a paperweight if this whole business plan doesn't work out? And I'm not sure they're wrong. That that right there is exactly why I wouldn't purchase it. I mean, I don't mind using someone else's hardware. I prefer it to run on my own. Um, But uh, you know, what, what happens when they go out of business? That's, that's just not something as someone who, owns not one but two small consulting businesses um i i can't be down if i miss an email i could i could miss an event and i could miss a, I, I could lose a client that's just not really an option for me one 450 no it's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com emailer writes hey noah i'm working to get some video for our church services we'd like to start with just streaming it in the building Nursery and a couple of other rooms with a goal to record and possibly stream it on our website in the future. We're currently running this on a laptop with Windows and PowerPoint to project. So I'm trying to ease a little Linux in here. I was looking for a little guidance on specking out an affordable open broadcaster machine for cameras. What should I be looking at? We'll probably look at two cameras and an input from the projector machine. Any help could be appreciated. Well, you asked the right group of guys, that's for sure. Um, I would tell you this. As far as what to look for in an actual physical box, I would strongly consider and look at a gently used Optiplex. And the reason I say that is because it is a it is a very high-end desktop device that you're going to be able to pick up for just a couple hundred dollars. When it goes to capture device, you actually have a number of different choices. The best choice, obviously, is to use a PCI-based capture device. So that would be a device that goes into the PCI slot 
because you're able to take advantage of that PCI bus and the bandwidth that comes with it. That's often not a cost-effective option. So in your case, you're probably looking at USB capture devices. Now, in that regard, you have a couple of options. The first and the best is a 1080p HDMI capture device. Now, the one we recommend is from a company called Magwell. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. It, it costs about $299, but the advantage is you are able to take any camera that outputs a 1080p device and bring that natively into your computer and then subsequently stream it. Obviously, you could put two or three of these and you would be able to pull two or three camera shots in. The downside to doing it this way, USB buses do have bandwidth limitations. And so I will tell you from experience, what you're probably going to find is you're going to get no more than one or two cameras per USB bus. Now, there's a couple of ways to kind of cheat that problem. The easiest, most cost-effective way is to purchase what we call a four-bus USB controller. And this is essentially a PCI card that has four individual USB buses on them, and each port is connected to a bus. Thus, you are able to connect four of these capture cards to a single computer and not run out of USB bandwidth. Well, Noah, how will I know if I run out of USB bandwidth? Well, it's pretty simple. You'll start having devices drop off of your computer. All of a sudden, you'll lose the picture on one or you'll lose the audio inside of your audio capture device, so on and so forth. Now, if you can't afford to buy some of these high-end capture cards, because 300 bucks a pop, that's going to you know, it's going to add up if you get two or three of them, right? And you're going to need one for the, you're for sure going to need one for the uh, the PowerPoint and then one for each camera, so on and so forth. One way to get around that is to use good quality USB cameras. And so the camera I would recommend would be something like a Logitech C920 or a Logitech C930. Now these are 1080p USB cameras at 30 frames per second. So they will look absolutely fantastic. Now, the great thing about these cameras are they're only about 68 bucks. And so you can get, and we have done it in churches, you can get a broadcast grade system for under $1,000 if you spend your money carefully. Eric, you had some thoughts on this. Go ahead. Um, one of the uh, one of the solutions I was thinking about from uh, from from sort of the, the, the graphical end was... Um, um, Oh, and the name just left me. Um, there's some software that works great for uh, putting lyrics over the top of uh, over the top of your camera shots. Um, we use uh, our, our church uses ProPresenter, um, which is closed source and subscription based. But uh, I, I've no, I've been watching uh, watching the market, and there's been a few projects that aren't quite there yet, but they're open source and the, they they do the same same thing. Charlie Brown AU in the chat room points out that the Logitech C920 and C930s have hardware encoding and processing built into the camera itself, so it doesn't rely on the CPU to do the encoding and decoding. That's true. And so, again, the, the Logitech system, you're going to have a hard time beating that as far as cost competitiveness goes. Obviously, just to fully flesh this all the way out, you'll install the Open Broadcaster software. It's a free set of software that will allow you to do a live broadcast um, from your computer. In fact, it's how we're broadcasting the Ask Noah show right now. So the chat room that you see in front of you in the video, it's capturing that from a second machine. Excuse me. It also is streaming that out and subsequent and simultaneously recording it. Now, the capture from the chat room is happening on the same computer that I'm streaming out from. You might not be capturing a chat room, but you might capture your presentation. Of course, we're going to recommend you do that inside of LibreOffice, not inside of PowerPoint, but you get the idea. You'll be able to capture that screen, and then you'll be able to create a graphic in by which you can then 
present that out to the rest of your church. So you will mirror essentially the the uh, display and you will go into the OBS configuration and tell it on the second display, don't show me all of the controls, just show me the video output. And it will allow you to create a very seamless uh uh, essentially broadcast inside of your church. And of course you have the ability to record it and release it later as a podcast, which of course we do at podcast.asknoahshow.com. The reason I point out that as an option is because you don't have to necessarily purchase a capture card. If the content you're capturing is running on the same computer as the OBS machine. And that's what we're doing here on our system. We're capturing it on the same machine. The downside is you're going to eat up CPU the upside is you don't have to buy another $300 capture card, but let me point this out. On our machine right now that we're broadcasting at 30 frames per second at 1080p, capturing the chat room, embedding that, creating the little Ask Noah animation thing that's in the background, all of that amounts to all of 22.6% of our fourth gen i5 processor. That's how that's how robust and lean OBS is. I mean, the, the software just literally sips CPU. So you should never really run into an issue there. Um, Eric in the chat room says that you are, so you're using OBS and a C920. Yeah. For some, uh, for what I'm doing audio, uh, mostly, um, I've, I've got a Logitech C920 on a, uh, on a, on an arm attached to my desk and, uh, I pipe that through OBS and I've got my, my intro and outro music set up as, as a scene. So, and then, uh, those scenes are tied to the, uh, to a number pad that I have. Um, so I can just hit one when the show starts hit two when, uh, when I do my intro and that kind of thing. So it, it it's, pretty i don't want to say automatable but it, it you can make it pretty uh volunteer friendly um so i mean the the same podcast setup could easily be adapted to a, to a house of worship that's oh, fantastic and we've actually put this into many a house of worships i'm also going to include a link inside the show notes again you can get those show notes at podcast.asnoahshow.com a link to one of my favorite audio interfaces it's the lexicon alpha it's an extraordinarily high quality capture device, the thing that makes this what I consider to be better, but certainly different than the traditional focus rights or the audio box USB, any of those, this device will, will, will allow you to capture audio without amplifying it. And so it makes an ideal interface if you're going from a church soundboard, for example, into your broadcast system because you don't want to be re-amplifying any of that audio. It's already been amplified and properly leveled and normalized as it came into the board. Mumble, we just got a couple of seconds left here before our music comes in and kicks us out for the hour, but I just wanted to say thanks so much for joining and, and chatting and just having a laid-back community night. I really appreciate it. Of course. It's no been problem. great. Yeah, it was a good time. time. Fantastic. Again, uh, we've got a bunch of special episodes coming up. Um, we've got a bunch of interviews that'll be going on the rest of the week. Head over to asknoahshow.com. There you'll find our upcoming schedule. We got Patrick McBride from Red Hat. We've got Jason from WireGuard. We've got our Brain Trust Party. That's going to happen Tuesday at 3 p.m. And finally, Wednesday at 6 p.m. Central at the Tamarack uh, Tap Room in Woodbury, Minnesota, we will have our party celebrating 100 episodes of the Ask Noah Show. And that is primarily thanks to you, the listening audience. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Hey, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. That's where you can stay up to date and find the latest. Head over to AskNoahShow.com. There you'll be able to have links to all of the resources on the show. Of course, podcast.asknoahshow.com is where you'll find the show notes, all of the articles, any of the products we talked about. 
The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Benner producer Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com.